wonder-working stars in the precious... Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. Open your eyes. Don't fall asleep. You mustn't fall asleep. You have to stay awake or the crows will eat you. When you see them up there, watching, looming, you cannot miss them. All hours of the day they wait. They wait for one of us to fall asleep and then they devour them. Or they try. But you have not been here long, so maybe you're still able to defend yourself. Some that are here, those that have not been here long, they still have some of their strength. They can fight the crows off for a time. But strength does not live long in this place. It drains away. And then they are weak like the rest of us who have been here longer. Not much longer, though. No, not much longer. This place kills all in time. But while we are here and while we are weak, we must help each other. It is all we can do. Those who have thrown us in here want you to die, and you will. You will eventually. But until you do, we will live, and to live as long as you can is the only act of defiance you have left. They wish for you to die and suffer. They will have both, but until they have both, they may only have one. Some do not understand this. Some strong men are thrown down here, and rather than save their strength for the crows, they use it against others. When the guards scatter food from up high, those tiny scraps and crumbs that could never possibly feed all of us, those men use their strength to take more for themselves. They live, and others die. And then they are alone, and when they sleep, the crows devour them. I've seen it again and again. Some think that they go for the eyes first, but it's always the tongue. They take your tongue so you cannot cry for help, and then leave you to bleed. The eyes they save for last. No rats, though. <laughs> There's that, at least. It's little comfort, though, here in this hell. Just looking around, you can see that it is a place engineered for cruelty, simply but efficiently. Walls surround us, 100 feet above our heads. No steps or ladders lead up these walls, and each day the callous guards spill hot grease down them. Not even the most skilled of climbers can get purchase on the slick, searing stone. Once a day, they throw down food, stale crumbs and scraps of rotten meat, a meal unfit for even a beggar. 
Each day they drop a barrel of brackish water, and each day it cracks and bursts as it reaches the ground. Those who can still move rush and clamor to the puddles and dripping plank, trying to bowl up handfuls before it's lost for good. I remember once a man came tumbling from on high. We do not know what happened, whether he fell or was pushed. All we knew was that he was one of the guards from up above, and that he'd broken both of his legs from the fall. For hours he cried for the rope, begging, sobbing. You could feel his terror tasted like hot, wet air. He likely knew the despair of this place better than anyone already there, having watched it from above for however long, but cry all he might, the rope never came. In all the time I'd been here, and in all the time since, I'd never seen the prisoners eat the flesh of their fellow man. Even here, among the forsaken and the scum, there was that understanding among us, that no matter the terrible hunger, we would never cross that line and become beasts. But for one of our tormentors, that small modicum of compassion was forgotten. For half a day the prisoners ate their fill, until those above saw fit to pour down tar and encase the carrion guard in a black, steaming prison. Those callous men on their high walls, walls that rise higher with each day, yes, day by day, brick by brick, the walls rise, they must rise, for we rise, and they must stay above us. Slowly but surely we rise on a growing mound of bones and calcified flesh. So, here we lie, in a pit in a soaring tower, a pit that rises each day. It's no bother to the crows, though they will fly as high as they must. What could you have done to be cast into this hell? <laughs> I suppose it could have been anything so long as it displeased the king. There are all kinds here. Enemies of the kingdom, soldiers, spies, emissaries sent to treat or to surrender, the detractors from within our own borders, outspoken champions of the people and quiet critics who chose the wrong ears to whisper into, and, of course, the traitors. But more than them, many more. Farmers who could not pay the rising taxes, merchants who are caught continuing trade with outside powers, slave workers from the mines who have collapsed with exhaustion, and anyone anyone who so much as shows an ounce of disrespect to the mages, to the cult of the magician. <laughs> the magician, that charlatan, that devil. This is all his doing. The king was a good man once. He had his temper and his eccentricities, but with patience and good counsel he could always be brought to the correct course. But the magician changed all that. I remember the day he first came to court. He was an oddity then, uh, an entertainment. The king had heard of a wonder-maker who had been visiting all the towns of the land, a man of miracles. So he was summoned to the palace to work his tricks. Well, he worried me from the moment I laid eyes on him. He was a tall man, haughty and handsome, far too handsome, with his sharp features and deep sable hair and those eyes of indigo. The way he sauntered about in his long cloak, deep, violet, and magisterial, that struck me. His cloak, I mean. Purple is an ill-omened color. You know this. We all do. 
It is the color of the old empire's dark times, and he wore it like some ruler of old. The king took to the magician immediately, as he bowed deeply and charmed the men and women of the court with his voice like molten silver. He wasted no time in dazzling all who were there. He made lights dance, summoned serpents and birds from his cloak, conjured water and fire. Even my old eyes were filled with youthful bewilderment. Even I, the Lord Chamberlain, cracked a smile that day. Yes, that's who I was in a past life, though. You can see how that story ends. Well, the king was delighted by the magician's performance and invited him to stay in court as a guest. At that time, I took the magician for more jester than warlock, not a true sorcerer, but a skilled illusionist. So despite his being a distraction, I saw no harm in a week's stay. But soon a week turned to weeks, then to months, then to years. The magician's displays took up more of the king's time and slowly became more private affairs as he crept closer to the king's ear and further away from prying eyes. There was a terrible winter one year when the king took ill with fever. At all hours the physics attended to him, but his recovery remained uncertain. This is when the magician began to ply him with tonics and potions, colorful, potent, foul-smelling. And after a few weeks' time, the king's health returned to him. Whether this was medicine, the fever having run its natural course, or whether there truly was some alchemy afoot, I do not know to this day. The king, however, was more certain. That was the beginning of the magician's monumental rise to power, and the beginning of the end. He began to attend council meetings, only to observe at first, but soon as a vocal participant. He advised the king in all matters, from diplomatic to military. As his voice grew louder, ours became more quiet. The king's loyal councillors had become mere spectators to the kingdom's governance, and eventually the formality of council meetings was dispensed with entirely. Then the oddities began. It started with the lavish expenditures, old rare tomes from faraway lands, relics and strange acquisitions, items that were rumoured to be of some arcane importance, brilliant gemstones that, when I had the gall to ask their purpose, I was told were to be used as some kind of conduit before being brushed off. Of course, as little information as we were being given... It still fell on us, the unheeded advisers to the king, to secure the coin to fund these endeavors. The kingdom was prosperous, but the coffers could still only bear so much strain. We were forced to raise taxes again and again until we thought they could be raised no higher, and still were mandated to raise them again. The tithes meant for the temples were seized. The king had no need for temples and priests, the magician told him. No need for false gods and teachings of charity and temperance. So the priests were banished, and those that remain perhaps lie at the bottom of this heap we sit upon now. But soon the tithes were spent as well, and with the coffers and the people's pockets run dry, the mines in the North Mountains were expanded in a furious search for gold and more gems. The king descended into wanton desire. I did not know what it was the magician spoke into his ear that poisoned his mind so, but I began to hear whispers of a perfect, immortal kingdom, of experiments, of the king himself being instructed in the arcane arts. 
The conditions were almost too perfect for treason. I heard whispers, of course, quiet at first, but soon too loud to ignore. The magician had gone too far, they said. The king had gone too far. The king's insanity must be ended. I was unsettled. I heard these intents, though never the names of those who intended them. I had ideas, though. There were only so many who could hope to seize power and hold it. The general, maybe? The fleet master, or Lord Edgar of the forests, or Lady Alice of the fields? Perhaps those surrounding the Grand Prince, young Lucian, the king's nephew? I knew that it would not be long before one of these parties, or perhaps all of them, tried to bring me into the fold. Surely my help would be essential in the peaceful transfer of power. The thought troubled me deeply. I knew that this was perhaps the best course for the kingdom, but still my conscience rebelled. It was my purpose to serve kings, not to make them. Perhaps there was still hope for his grace. Something of the man I'd once known. I, I had to know for certain before making a choice. Whether to take part in some terrible scheme or to confess any conspiracy to the king. I had to choose one and be certain of it, for indecision in the matter would be a sure death. That night, while all slept, I made my way to the lowest levels of the palace using the secret paths known to me, to the dark, dusty chambers where I knew that devil the magician did his work. That was the key to my choice, I'd determined. I needed to know just how deep this depravity and sorcery the king had decreed went. And as I stumbled out from the dark, cramped corridors, entered that room, and began lighting the candles, I found my answer. What I saw sent horror and revulsion spiraling down into my very soul. I saw what all that gold we had amassed had been used for. Dusty tomes with monstrous images etched along the spines and covers, depictions of demons and other creatures of hell. There was one book that I recognized by title alone laid open on a desk. The magnum opus of Bromine's Nas, the great heretic of the realignment period, its title written in old Iberic. The Tower of Despair. I'd never dared to learn its true contents, but I knew it by reputation, and it seems that all in our kingdom soon came to know of it as well. Laid out beside it were notes, construction plans, and body schematics of all kinds. There were tools as well for some unknown purpose, forceps and cruelly curved blades kicked with blood. As I raised my head from this workstation. My eyes were drawn to the many jars and glass containers, all carefully labeled Alicorn, Wing of Fury, the Jacobian Heart. There was a large jar, its marker smudged and unintelligible, filled to the brim with a clear green liquid, and from inside a monkey, perhaps some kind of small pygmy man, bobbed up and down and even in death seemed to stare at me through the glass. Death constant thread of that horrific place. Everywhere I turned, I saw it. Experiments, the rumors said, butchery more like it. Beasts of all kinds of land, air, and sea strung up, ripped open, torn apart, poked and prodded, dripped dry. I could see where their bones were to be ground in the mortar. I assumed to be mixed with all sort of the foul-smelling plants there and boiled into the potions that lined the shelves. 
But that was nothing, truly nothing, when compared to what he was doing to humans. There were four of them now. Five, maybe six. It was difficult to tell, disassembled as they were. Human beings strung up in the way those beasts were, torn apart in the same way, dripped dry in the same way. One poor soul was laid out on a table. The eyelids were peeled back, the mouth sewn shut, the head shaved, and the ears cut off, and the canals fitted with small tin funnels. The chest was torn open, nothing removed but everything exposed, and affixed to the top of the skull, burrowed in and driven deep, and affixed to the heart in the same way were the two largest amethyst crystals I had ever seen. A matching pair for body and soul. As I contemplated this sight and resigned myself to a conspiracy sure to come, all at once the world stopped. The eyes of that body had shifted and were looking at me before I could even think its arm had reached up and grabbed me by the throat. Slowly it rose to a standing position, never letting go, never taking those lifeless eyes off of me. The crystals embedded in its heart and brain shone brilliantly. As the life slowly began to drain from my own body, I heard the echoes of a low laugh. And there he was, not long after the laugh that heralded him, the magician. Lord Chamberlain, he sneered. It seems I've let you scurry about this palace for too long. I knew you would come here. I had seen it in the dust, though I did not think so soon. A cold burst of pain rushed through my body at once. The composite man, the creature, released me from its iron grip, and as I collapsed to my knees, it pulled back its second arm, the one it had just plunged cleanly through my body. The magician could not contain his joy. Look at it. Stronger than any man. It does not question. It only watches and listens, completely obedient to me, and immortal. The blood was pouring from my wound. I could not speak, but I could see that from his cloak the magician had pulled a third piece of amethyst, just as beautiful and shining just as bright with beams of violet. Of course, this is not true immortality. The body may remain, but the mind is long dead. No, immortality of the mind and soul, without these burdensome conduits, still elude me. He seemed to ponder for a moment. My senses were leaving me. But if it were just the mind and soul, yes, maybe then. With more experiments, yes, more experiments. Hmm, perhaps you have use yet, my lord. Perhaps you and I will end all this talk of treason in one fell swoop. Then my work may proceed in peace. As he laughed an awful low laugh, my consciousness faded away. My memories from that time are a fog, but they come in and out of my mind in flashes. I remember the knife, the cut. I remember a bottle and blue liquid being poured down my throat. I remember my severed head being brought before the king and being asked to name my co-conspirators and Despite my mind screaming against my tongue, the words coming from my mouth still, words that were not even mine, not even true, coaxed out by some magic. 
The general, the fleet master, Lord Edgar, Lady Alice, the grand prince, they all died. Lucian, worst of all, his body quartered and put on spikes, high on the ramparts, more food for the crows. Lucian had the worst death, but perhaps I suffer the worst fate. I have rotted here since that day, a head suffering the bane of prolonged life. Nothing but a maniac's experiment. Each day watching those around me die, seeing more and more new souls descend into this hell, hearing the news of the forsaken kingdom that I could not save. The crows would be my only reprieve, but the soldiers shoot them down when they fly too close to me. He cannot let them take me. He must see how many long years it takes before my mind rots away. If it rots away. How much closer is he to his goal? That I cannot tell. Of this I am sure, though, the king will die. Perhaps it's only then that the magician will uncover the secret. How convenient that would be. But until that time, he keeps the crows at bay. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash the wrong station. This week's episode, Keep the Crows at Bay, was written by Anthony Vitello and performed by Thomas Goff. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Vitello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin and arranged for the viola and performed by Ilana Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Batello, and Jacob BRDS. And until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>